Sometimes you need to make a quick escape. Just the other day, I was enjoying a pint with some time-out friends after work, and I realized that my poor hairy son Cronus was still waiting for his dindins. And I never want my dog to go hungry. Thankfully on free now, the average ride or black cab is just six minutes away. One app, more ways to travel. Feel free now. I'm coming, Cronus! Goodbye! It was a tiny apartment, but a lot of friends from all over Europe actually stayed there. How many pairs of keys did your apartment have? About 50. <laughs> did you get 50 pairs of keys cut for your front door? Yes, and we basically... <laughs> Good morning, good afternoon, good whatever. I'm Joseph McTitch, the big dog at Time Out London, and you're listening to Love Thy Neighbourhood, the podcast in which someone sleeker and sweeter than me shows me around part of the city that means a lot to them. Somewhere special, four places that they would give their own five-star rating to. Five stars, of course, that's what we do at Time Out. If we like something, we gratefully hurl stars in its direction, changing the course of history forever. And today, I'm in South Kensington? Yeah, quite strange. Not somewhere I come that often. I know it was known as uh, Albertopolis for a while because it was the area that Queen Victoria, when her husband Prince Albert died, he had a sort of long-held dream that a part of London would be reserved for this huge sort of maze of edifying buildings that would educate the people. When he um, when he carked it, she did just that. She built it for him. So all the museums are a sort of t- a testament to like his vision, I suppose. Adjacent to lots of the most expensive real estate in London, South Kensington, the Royal Albert Hall as well, and a big old chunk of Hyde Park, which is very nice. Today's guest comes pretty far out from the left field. It's a bit of a curveball, this one, but it is someone who I've been sort of low-key fascinated by for absolutely years. Uh, He's been voted in the past the most powerful person in his field. He's recorded 2,500 hours of interviews or something like that with people he thinks are interesting, uh, which bodes well for this. Uh, Famously, he doesn't really sleep, has his meetings at sort of 5 a.m. or occasionally at 3 a.m. and things like that. Um, Never made himself a cup of coffee, that's another one. Only tried to cook for himself once, uh, at which point the saucepan uh, burst into flames and he never tried that again. I'm of course talking about the director of the Serpentine Galleries, Hans Ulrich Obrist. H-U-O. Like a fascinating guy. He, he lives to read and to chat. He calls himself a junction maker, which I think is a way of saying he doesn't really sort of do much making himself, but he sort of facilitates meetings between people and he sort of makes things happen. Just sounds like a person who's just got this inexhaustible, unquenchable appetite for knowledge and things. I have absolutely no doubt that I'm going to come across like a total dumbass in this episode. Uh, He'll be referencing things that I've never heard of, talking about artists that I don't know, and I'll be trying and failing to keep up. But uh, I'm doing it all for you, dear listener. We're going to see if we can lower this man's brow. Let's bring his brow right down. Anyway, we've arrived at the first location. Let's go and say hi. Hello, Hans Ulrich. Where are we and why have you brought me here? Hi, good morning. Yes, it's nice to see you. And uh, the question uh, you asked was, you know, go on a walk. 
in South Kensington around the Serpentine, which is where I work as the artistic director. And I always think it's you know interesting to kind of think about how different institutions are connected. You right. know, and uh, so I thought it's nice that we start actually with uh, an institution, which is not the Serpentine, but an institution we've collaborated with actually through Sumaya Valley. Okay. Because we have this wonderful you know architect project with Sumaya Valley. We, every year we build a pavilion in front of the Serpentine. It's our annual commission. Particularly, she was very interested in um, in the mosaic room as one of these places, you know, where the archipelago of the pavilion would take place. And that's where we are right now. And that's why we started here. And also, I have great memories here, actually, because I once did a, a conference here about poetry. Uh, so, uh, actually, exactly in that room, yeah. Yeah, it's a very nice building. What sort of stuff do they do here most of the time? Um, I mean, it's a, a contemporary art program, quite interdisciplinary. It often has, you know, uh, it has a focus on the Middle East and brings in, you know, super interesting positions of, of visual artists, of architects. I remember there was a show here of, uh, connected also to urbanism. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so in that sense, also connected to our interdisciplinary mission at the, at the Serpentine. And, uh, yeah. So for the benefits of the listeners as well, maybe some of them don't know your background, actually, yeah. or how you became involved in junction making and curating and all these sorts of things. If you can take them back to Switzerland, yeah. to a young hands, and just talk a little bit about what happened in your brain to get you to where you are now. Basically, during my adolescence, I started to visit a lot of studios of artists and wanted to kind of start to organize exhibitions. So I began in my kitchen. And the first exhibition happened in 1991 in my kitchen. It had a budget of uh, approximately 200 pounds, mm. the whole exhibition. And um, uh, basically, 29 visitors came over three months. But then it became a rumor. Could you explain where the art actually was in the kitchen? If I'm gesturing at a sink here, it would be... Uh waist high sort of shoulder high was the art uh, like on a lower point like inside a cupboard or yeah the art was in the cupboard there was Poltansky projected a candle so there was a little bit of a miracle where usually you'd have the garbage in the kitchen mm -hmm. but then um actually peter fisher and david weiss were in the center of the show the swiss artists and they created a kind of a kitchen altar okay. where they brought in oversized food supply which is usually for restaurants you know like five liters of ketchup and 10 kilograms of noodles <laughs> and, they, and they built a kind of an altar of these huge packages of food you know above the sink in the kitchen cupboard and this was very strange because you know everything suddenly to us adults appeared really, really big. And it yeah. sort of provoked a childhood memory yes. where, you know, as a child, everything, of course, appears much bigger mm. than once you're grown up. And so in a way, they created this childhood memory through that in the kitchen. And they also, because I never really cooked, so I always had like books in the kitchen. So they also took the books out of my kitchen and brought food. So they made the kitchen into a kitchen. Was that the last time you remember seeing your kitchen being used for food? Yeah, I never, yeah, I never really cooked. Yeah, mm. I, uh, uh, it, but, but occasionally. So it's, I mean, the, the fridge couldn't be used during the exhibition also because Hans-Peter Feldman, the late uh, German artist, he actually transformed the fridge into an exhibition space because he says, I prefer to exhibit in the fridge. And then we had also Frédéric Boulibouabre, who couldn't come. He, the, the visionary artist who invented the whole alphabet, he lived in Abidjan, in the Ivory Coast, and he basically sent us a drawing every day, which then we would install in the kitchen. So it was also the kitchen in Zankan in Switzerland was connected to, to Abidjan. That's quite magical. And then at this stage in your life, if you are forced to look at white goods in a, in, a, in a big shop, if you're buying a washing machine or a fridge or something for the serpentine, does a little part of your brain also think about how is this washing machine or fridge going to work in an art environment? If I, was, if I had to use this to exhibit some work as well as store goods that are cold. 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of soon after the kitchen, I organized an exhibition in a hotel room. Oh. I've always continued to kind of also organize exhibitions in, you know, in house museums. We did a show in the Sir John Soane's house in London, which I curated in 99, which is a wonderful house museum and uh, in Lincoln in Fields. And you can say in a way the Serpentine, because we're going to go from here to the Serpentine, is of course a former tea house. So it's also in a way a house museum. I've clearly always after the kitchen maintained, you know, an interest in this idea, but because also for artists to kind of realize more intimate works when it's in a house. Does it also hint within you at some dislike of a gallery? You want to get out of the gallery? I've never disliked gallery. I like gallery spaces, you know, uh, exhibition spaces, museum spaces. But I think that there are one possibility, which is surrounded by lots of other possibilities. I've always been interested in curatorially exploring them and also bring art into society. And that can work in many different ways. It can work by bringing it into an apartment, but it can also happen, you know, of course, through public space. In Kensington Gardens, you know, from Crystal to Fishley Weiss, yeah. we would do public art. Or with the pavilions, as I mentioned, you know, the Sumaya Valley Pavilion, which had an extension here and to different places was like an archipelago or this year Lina Gottme, you know, create unexpected encounter in the mm. park and there are no doors. I'm also kind of always interested with exhibitions to kind of develop situations where there are no doors so that visitors can encounter it without maybe initially thinking we are going to see an exhibition. Do you think a little bit of immersive art, which is obviously so popular, immersive theatre, is almost like a cheapening of that vision? Like, it's so popular now and it happens in so many places. Do you ever see that stuff and think, oh, that's, that's what I've been sort of trying to do for decades and they've, they've ruined it? I mean, we, we do work with immersive technology at the Serpentine and I think in a way, you know, we, we live in a time where of course there are lots of technological transformations and a lot of artists are interested in, in video games. And a lot of artists are, are interested also in, you know, in working with AR and, and VR. And that's something, you know, for example, the current exhibition at the Serpent Time by Gabriel Massa and a young Brazilian artist whose video game we, we produced with our technology team is actually, you know, to some extent immersive, but it's, it's more than that. It's a mixed reality installation. I think in a way there is sculpture, there is video, people mm. can play a game, people can also watch people play a game. So I think what is fascinating right now is that technology can become a part of an exhibition. It can create literally an augmented experience, yes. uh, but in a way we still have a lot of physical aspects to it. And so I think, you know, the future is not either or, it's not uh, having exhibitions of technology or analog exhibitions. I think it's more both and, so the future is mixed reality. Right. And have you ever entered a space, a house, a shopping mall, uh, a venue and thought like, I'd love to put on an art exhibition in here? Um, Yes, I mean, that happens all the time, of course. It it's, can be very inspiring, and suddenly that's what happened, for example, with the Sir John Soane's Museum. Carrie Thwin Evans, mm. the artist, took me to see the Sir John Soane's Museum in 99, and I was so fascinated by these interstices, by the mirrors, by also the paintings hidden behind paintings, by the incredible density of the display, by the way how you can find very valuable, precious things, but at the same time, very banal things Soane's would have found in the 19th century on a walk. Like, there could be a constable or a Turner painting, but then you could also have a brown of wood. Yes, it's I dense. Would have picked up and it's very dense display. So I told Carithin we should do a show here. So we knocked at the door of the director, and at the time the director was Margaret Richardson, mm. um, and she's actually the sister of J.G. Ballard. So we, we had a chat with Margaret, and we said, you know, we'd really love to bring contemporary art here. And I told her that I've done it in the kitchen and also in the Nietzsche house in Sils Maria, never in London. 
Uh, and she says, you know, let me talk to the trustees. You should come back in a week. So Kareth and I went back in a week. And she says, we think it's a really, really good idea. So then the Search and Stones House at that time had a, a guest room for scholars. And they said, you know, you can live there. So for a year, I was on and off actually living. It was very, very uncanny at night. You I know? bet. Yeah. In the, in, in spooky. The, yeah, spooky. And then we did this exhibition. So that's an example of how the enthusiasm for a place led to an exhibition, no? Yeah. And J.G. Ballard, of course, fascinated by, you know, the things that were mundane and giving them a sense of like, yeah. you know, uh, the creepiness, the unheimlich aspect of it. Would you ever approach somewhere super duper mundane and think about doing a show, maybe in a Pret-a-Manger or a Greg's or something and instill within that venue something very special and weird? Yeah, we have actually done this brutally early club, which I started with uh, Schumann Bazaar and with Markus Miesen, uh, with two urbanists and architects. And when I moved to London, you know, I, I felt it always took such a long time to convene meetings with friends because everybody had prior schedule, right? So if you want to bring like 10, 20 friends together, one has to plan it weeks in advance. So we thought, how can we maintain in an urban context and in a city in London where everybody's so busy, improvisation? Right. So we thought, if we do a club at 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m., nobody can tell us that they have prior schedule <laughs> so then like we could sort of plan it 24 hours before and so that obviously we needed to do this in cafes you know because we all live in tiny apartments so we couldn't do it at home so we needed to do it in cafes which would be open at 6 30 a.m and so that led to the type of cafes you mentioned and then at some point some younger artists said who were part of the brutal early club it is really kind of annoying that it's at 6.30 because, you know, why wouldn't you do it hyper early, much, much earlier, like at 3 o'clock? Because first of all, the city is kind of very magical because yes. it's kind of empty. And it's, it's, it's and secondly, we could then come, because they would go out late, we could then come directly from the club or from the, you know. So they, they, at, at the brutally, brutally early club yeah. at 3 a.m., the artists were drunk. Ex uh, yeah, or, or, <laughs> or they have been partying or yeah. whatever. And then the artist basically said, you know, then we don't have to go to bed. So then I said, this is a good idea. Let's try to do a hyper early club. But then we had to find cafes. <laughs> which are open at 3 a.m. Mm. And that led to a whole other challenge. So we found, for example, an interesting cafe at uh, King's Cross, okay. which is open 24 hours for travelers who missed the last train. So it's always quite busy. Amazing. You know? And then we also came up with this idea that it could become a film club. So we would always, at the Hyper Early Club, Brutal Early Club, have a film premiere. So a film would be screened for the first time to whoever gets up so early as a little bit of uh, you know, recognition for the effort. Yeah, but which were the other venues that you remember from the Hyper Early Club? Because there, there can't be many that are capable of hosting. There was, I forgot exactly where it was, but there was outside London a petrol station, you know, <laughs> where a lot of buses were parked at yeah. night and it was open 24 hours. Like a and service station. A service what? station, yeah. There was a service station which was open 24 hours on the outskirts. I also remember that once we were in Bar Italia, which, you know, Bar Italia in Soho is open 24 hours, but then there was a problem that all of a sudden, you know, there is a moment early in the morning where they, for a few minutes, maybe for half an hour, they closed because it has to be cleaned. Right. So then all of a sudden the club happened in the streets to walk around and you know, all of that. Yeah, a club with no home. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for showing me around the mosaic rooms. I think we're going to move on to the next place okay, now. Cool. Yeah, thank you so much for the great questions and it has only just begun. <laughs> Thunderbirds are go. Thunderbirds are go, and the Thunderbirds are arriving at our second 
place. Do you want to say where we are? You know where we are. We are now arriving at the Serpentine and um, it's exciting because we're actually here entering the pavilion, uh, the 2023 pavilion by Lina Gottme. It's a Paris-based Lebanese architect. And um, every year we have this experiment with architecture in front of the gallery. It's a commission which started in 2000 with uh, Zaha Hadid. And then last year it was Theaster Gates. The year before, as mentioned, Sumaya Wali, who was the uh, basically segue into Mosaic Room. Yeah. And uh, we started to focus more on, on younger architects uh, and give them this platform as an opportunity you know for, for more visibility of their practice and Lina came up with this idea which no architects has done before yeah. in this series which is it's called a table which is really this idea that there is a table where people can gather where visitors can gather and you know people can come in groups and have their meetings here or you know also people who have a map before can meet here at table at this table and uh, of course, it's also great when performances happen because we regularly, this is also a content machine. So tonight, yeah. we're going to have a park night by an artist from Brazil who is going to do a performance here. So very often we have the park nights on, on, on Friday, readings, film screenings, different things. But really, most of the time, it's for visitors to find out how they want to use the pavilion. Mm. Because obviously, everything we do has free admission, the exhibitions, uh, the pavilion, the public sculpture. But it's important here that there are no doors because many people can just walk in yeah. and have an experience with architecture. There is also, I think cities need more spaces where one can really convene, where one can have, uh, you know, spend time without being obliged to consume. Because obviously there is a cafe here, so it's possible to get a coffee or a tea, but there's no obligation. People can just use it. It's, it's, it's like a common. This, yeah, the cafe is very subtle. It's nice. We're actually in the pavilion now. I feel like it has almost, to me, maybe everyone has a different opinion. I feel like a medieval vibe. I don't know, I can imagine a hearth in the middle, a big fire, and everyone sat around the outside looking in. How do you find it in here? Yeah, the architect was also mentioning, you know, that the idea of the ritual, because obviously we live in a time which is often bereft of rituals, and she's interested in kind of inventing 21st century rituals. And so quite a lot of artists also who do performances here are actually, as you say, connecting to this aspect in a way of, of a ritual. You are a person that does have rituals, I imagine. Um, do you think they help sort of glue the day together? Are they useful? Yeah, they do, and it also creates a kind of a continuation, I would say. I mean, I have, um, I read every morning when I wake up 15 minutes of, of Edouard Glissant, my, who is my mentor and great inspiration. I always go jogging in the park in the morning. So, yeah, it's, it's regular, uh, these regular rituals, yeah. If you're taken away from those rituals. And the Brutelioli Club, in a way. That was one as well, yeah, absolutely. What is so fascinating is to see how the architects, because obviously the architects are kind of aware of what has previously happened here. Yes. So we've just finished the uh, Thomas Saraceno exhibitions. It's, it's always important that actually the, the artist can somehow transform also uh, the space and Thomas actually added these solar panels which we are now going to keep on the roof so that basically the solar panels from now on always you know empower the um, uh, the videos oh, cool. which we show so he really you know in a long-lasting way changed the gallery but he also switched off the we can go and see the sculpture yeah, he switched off the air conditioning it's a habitat for squirrels uh, for birds uh, let's walk towards it we're just walking across the lawn yeah, in front can, of the serpentine have a look, yeah. towards this structure and it's been built for the benefit of local wildlife and squirrels. It looks very nice. It looks like a, a sort of chemistry diagram, doesn't it, I would say? Absolutely. And Thomas wanted, you know, with his exhibition, he wanted this to be, because he says, you know, we're always building these pavilions, but they're not really, and, and the same is true for the exhibition. They're mostly yeah. for, uh, for humans, and he wanted an interspecies dialogue. So by switching off the air conditioning, all of a sudden, we could actually open the doors of the gallery wide to the park, yeah. and animals could enter. So he created paintings and artworks for dogs, 
little houses for squirrels and for birds. This sculpture is really for many different animals. It's an interspecies sculpture, but it was also a whole habitat for spiders in the gallery. There was a whole spider city. I mean, spiders are amazing architects. They built their own pavilions. That's true. And we had basically spider architecture in the central room, mm. but we also had a confessional because Thomas appropriated an old confessional from a church, but instead of a priest, visitors could actually confess to a spider. That sounds amazing. Is it a real spider or is it, it's not a human dressed as a spider? No, it's a, real, it's a it's a real, real spider, spider and you know, one can send a question and that was one of the videos in the exhibition. They do get bad PR spiders for some reason. Why do you think you're still going back to art over and over again? Because I can see when you walk into certain rooms or when we're in front of the sculpture, there's still a moment where it hits you. I can see it hits you and you're still thinking about it. You don't seem to have gotten sort of um, tired of it or, or cynical about it at all. Uh, how is it still finding ways to amuse you and make you think? Now, it's such an interesting question because it kind of started when I was a teenager. You know, I saw Giacometti in Switzerland, the long, thin sculptures, and kind of got really into art because of that. And then at some point I read Vasari. Vasari wrote this book about the lives of the artists and the architects in his century. And that sort of made me understand that there are actually some extraordinary artists in our time and one could meet them. So when I was 16, I started to visit the studios of the artists and got extremely excited and enthusiastic you know, of working with artists. And, um, uh, and somehow I became aware also of the fact that actually artists have amazing unrealized projects because very often you know, artists are always kind of invited to do the same thing. They're like invited to do some museum shows, some gallery shows, and uh, sometimes, you know, a biennial. But they have actually all kinds of other projects, mm. uh, uh, as we can see here with Thomas, to transform, you know, a gallery for an interspecies dialogue. And I always ask artists quite at the beginning, you know, what are their unrealized projects? And ever since I'm 16, 17, I just find it incredibly exciting that we can be useful yeah. to make some of these artist dreams uh, a reality. So so nothing in that sense ever changed. I'm as enthusiastic about it as I was when yeah, I was Yeah, you 16. do seem yeah. to be. So if you meet, let's say if I was an artist and you met me and just idly in conversation, I mentioned that I'd always wanted to, I, I don't know, glue the cadavers of horses together to create an enormous tower of horses. That would be the thing where your ears would prick up and be like, let's make this happen. Uh, usually also it's a whole list of unrealized projects the artists <laughs> have and then you know some some are utopic i mean the range of the unrealized is pretty wide and i think it's interesting also to talk about this in a podcast because i think uh, you know everybody who's going to listen to us to this yeah. podcast will have unrealized projects but the range of unrealized projects is very wide and i just think it's interesting to kind of map them basically some projects are too big to be realized. They're also too expensive to be realized. Some projects are literally unrealizable. They're utopic or partially unrealizable. Then I would say there is also projects where we don't have enough time to do that. I mean, um, I met Federica Myra, the amazing Austrian poet, and she was 97, 98. And she says, I've got another century of literature to write. <laughs> so obviously here we had a situation where some of these projects were too time intense to be realized. Then there is, of course, also censorship you know some projects are unrealized because they're censored and the late Doris Lessing one of the great Londoners uh, absolutely uh, amazing amazing writer it was just before she won the Nobel Prize for Literature she says when I asked her about the unrealized project I gave her this whole list of categories she says you forget one very major category maybe one of the most important one which is the projects we want to do but don't dare to do she right. says there is not only censorship there is sometimes you know self-censorship yeah as the realizer of unrealized projects what advice would you give people who have that fear in their own lives about starting a project or doing something you because you go about your day making unrealized things happen what advice would you have for people that just can't seem to make it happen I mean I've always believed that in a kind of a DIY approach because you know when I began to curate you know I wasn't invited to 
do a show anywhere. I just did it. I did it in my kitchen and then uh, in a very DIY way, you know, and then we decided to do this project, Do It, which was the ultimate, in a way, DIY logic where we invited artists to do instructions, recipes, how-to manuals. And this was basically uh, an immaterial exhibition, but everybody all over the world can just realize it. And that project has been going on actually for 30 years now. It's 30th anniversary this year. And it's called Do It. It's called Do It. And I would say my advice is that. My advice is a kind of a DIY thing and also not to wait until there is an opportunity, but in a way to create that opportunity, also by going out into the world, because I think that so many possibilities also for exhibitions, for art in the world out there to bring art into society. One of the great things about London, which is why already when I was a teenager, I kept coming here from Switzerland, then, you know, in the 90s, I spent a lot of time here doing studio visits. I actually, as a guest curator, curated my first show here in 96 with Julia Payton-Johns called Take Me, I'm Yours, with Andrea Schlick and Julia Payton-Johns. So I always was very magnetically attracted to London because of the amazing artists who are here. And it just continues generation after generation. Like one of the first encounters I had here was actually with the late John Latham and the late Barbara Stevini. And it's a bit connected to your question also about this, the advice. They basically said, you know, they did the artist placement group and they basically said, you know, we need to just bring art into society. In every corporation, in every context, you know, there is an opportunity, there is space for art. So I think, yeah, do it. Yeah, just do it. You heard him. Well, that brings us to the end of our time at Serpentine. Uh, you ready to move on? Yes, and we're going to walk fast because, you know, I often... How do you call this in English when you do a fast walk? Power walking. Exactly. Uh, it's not running, but it's very fast walking. And I often did this here in the park with Brian Eno. So Brian Eno uh, has been a friend for a long time of the, of the Serpentine. We've worked with him on the marathons. We've worked with him on the Back to Earth project, the ecology project where we had... Um, an amazing installation he created for the Serpentine Wow! Uh, about a lot of sounds. You know, it is really about extinction also, not only of, of species, but also the disappearance of sounds, which goes with that, no? And so he's done a very, very uh, strong, powerful installation, sound installation related to that. But he's also almost our neighbor because he obviously lives on the other side of the park. So very often we do the meetings with Brian as walks and he somehow uh, introduced me to this idea that we can actually not run, but walk really, really fast. When you lived in London, you didn't always live where you live now, presumably. Where was the first place you lived in London? What area? Yes, when I came here in 96 as a guest curator, of Take Me, I'm Yours, which was a show I did at the Serpentine. It was the first show I curated at the Serpentine. And everyone could take something from the exhibition, I remember. And then do the exhibition in their home, yeah. And it involved uh, <laughs> it involved badges, but it also involved puzzles, fragments of, you know, image collections, fruits, vegetables, lots yes, of different yeah, things. And people could sort of do their own, their own exhibitions in a very DIY way. Uh, and at that time, I lived in an apartment in the Elephant and Castle. Right. And we actually also started a little project space at that time, a type of salon project space with Maria Lind uh, and Rebecca on Nesbitt. We did this uh, for about a year, a year and a half. I see. In the shopping mall of Elephant and Castle. We've now so, sadly gone. That shopping yeah, mall is no longer here. Which is gone. And I have lots of photos actually of these little exhibitions we did there. And like many, many of my friends in Europe had keys. And it was a tiny apartment, but a lot of friends from all over Europe actually stayed there. How many pairs of keys did your apartment have? About 50. <laughs> did you get 50 pairs of keys cut for your front door? Yes, and we basically, <laughs> you know, uh, friends could just come and stay. And so sometimes three friends were there, sometimes one friend was there. I think a lot of people who don't consider themselves interested in fine art would often say, I don't know how to appreciate it. Do you think there's a skill to appreciating art? Or is it simply about just like opening your mind and not thinking too much? 
I think it's also about being open for the encounter, you know, and I think in a way, I think art has this possibility also. I mean, not only is it what survives our time, it's basically what... It's the mark we leave. Exactly. And, and at the same time, I think it's also this transformative experience we can have, you know, we can have with art. And I think this experience can kind of happen sometimes also when we expect it least. In that sense, art is, a, is like a ninja and it can leap out and get you when you least expect it. There is also this great possibility now with the ubiquity, you know, of mm. moving image. And I, I remember like in, in, in the late 90s, I curated a show actually for TV uh, where, you know, after the eight o'clock news, there would be a video clip by an artist. Right. And, you know, all of a sudden, millions of people would, in an unexpected way. Yeah. So I've always been interested in, in terms of curating to think about, You're you know, exposing them to art, almost um, yeah. like radioactive material, blasting them with it. Uh, but, I'm, you know, I'm sure that for every one person out of 500 that experienced that, it had a, probably like a life-changing impact. Yeah. Um, it might be one of those things that like, shaped their entire life, which is nice. Well, we've arrived here at our third location. Do you want to say where we are? We are here at the Institut Francais, Cine Lumière, La Médiathèque, La Gazette Brasserie. And uh, this is a place where we have done many, many collaborations. Uh, I always remember we came here with Agnès Varda. Yes. The pioneering French film director, won an Oscar, and she basically is the mother of the Nouvelle Vague. In the 60s, she passed away in her 90s, uh, very early 90s, a few years ago. And she came here maybe five, six years ago for a retrospective we organized with the Serpentine to basically, you know, honor her and, and show her work. But we also show younger emerging artists here. So obviously, you know, the Serpentine doesn't have a cinema space. Uh, so very often when we move with work with moving image, we would collaborate with here. And then, you know, if we have filmmakers like Anis Vada, or Menelaos, the Greek director, we would actually often do film retrospectives in collaboration with the uh, Institut Francais. So it's a great partnership. Well, it's a beautiful, lovely looking cinema is what it is. It's, it's an art deco. Uh, let's take a look inside. Let's walk in. Love Thy Neighbourhood is sponsored by Freenow, the mobility super app. Thanks to Freenow, I can get to where I need to go in London in a private ride, black cab, e-scooter or e-bike. One app, more ways to travel. Feel free now. Okay, we've just strolled inside Cine Lumiere and it's a beautiful lobby as far as lobbies go. But you were speaking before about its connection to your professional life, yeah. all of the collaborations. But I don't think I've ever heard you speak about film and cinema in and of itself. Are you a film guy at all? Always been, and, and, and in a way, of course, through you know my time in Paris, you know, in the 90s, I spent a lot of time that I really went to the movies, uh, you know, every single day. But then, uh, of I course, I have to stop you and ask if you had a favorite cinema in Paris because there's a couple of absolute beauties. Yeah, I was actually in Paris. I lived near the Akaton, uh, and that was near Luxembourg, and I, I went there all the time. That mm. was uh, next door to where I lived. And in London, it's the Institut Francais. I would come here to watch movies, but also, it's not only to see films, but it's also to actually collaborate on films. Mm. Because we have, a, for us, you know, it's not only architecture, we work um, at the Serpentine, being a visual arts organization, we work with poetry, we work with 
music uh, and we work with uh, literature and with and with cinema. It's a permanent dialogue really with the Institut France. Uh, uh, we're very grateful uh, to them and uh, cinema yeah. often plays a role but also sometimes it's connected to our exhibition and it's all walking distance as we can see. It's a walk. You engage almost solely with like incredibly sort of like edifying and um, you know often hard going work whether it's the writing, whether it's um, film, whether it's architecture, do you find it sometimes tempting to engage with something very, very mindless? Uh, I do have a, you know, a passion for video games, but I don't actually think that they are mindless. I think video games are really fascinating. They're kind of world building. It's also the video games is a kind of a great possibility to bring kind of all the disciplines together because in a way maybe the video games can become the new Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, because there is music, there is moving image, there is of course through the game engines possible now for artists easier to do their own games. So, so I, I, you know, we have the video game now of Gabriel Massan mm. at the Serpent. I've also curated this world building show where like 35 artists, uh, that's actually at the Pompey doing Mets right now, where 30, 40 artists have actually are showing their own, you know, video games. Some are mission driven, yes. related to social issues or to environmental issues. Some are basically more like a flannery to just get lost, like yes. going on a walk. But I would say lately, you know, um, it's the not mindless, mindful activity of kind of engaging with, with video games, which has really fascinated me. And also, I, I, as a kid, didn't really grow up with video games. No. So I have a lot to catch up. Well, I'm assuming that like, your interest in them is different from a, a gamer's interest. Yeah. But is there, is there a single title of a video game that you remember or anything like that? Or is it simply the medium? No, I mean, there are many, there are many different games. I mean, Kojima's games uh, have been, you know, Death Stranding and so on have been very inspiring, but also... He's an amazing figure, uh, He's a great artist and a visionary, you know, so I do also think we have visionaries in the world of video games, but then at the same time, we have now visual artists who come from the field I'm more anchored in, who actually start to work, you know, with video games. Yeah, and it's got a very, very strong aesthetic. Uh, I think we've uh, come to the end of our time here, but... Um, Thanks very much for showing me Cine Lumière. Should we move on to our next location? Yeah, let's go to the pub. <laughs> what do you think the film you've seen the most is in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. It's maybe some Tarkovsky movies. Uh, I think mine's Jurassic Park. Maybe Godard also. And I think this idea that we can always return to it is like, you know, whenever one moves house, you know, uh, I think one would never get rid of the books which one thinks one will reread one day. Yeah. So, and, and I think, you know, that's true for all art forms. I mean, if we have a film or a video game or a novel or a poem, we can always return to. That's definitely one criteria, you know? And I mean, a lot of films, we've seen them once and then we're done with it. Yes, yeah, it's quite disposable. Okay then, well, what is the exhibition you saw the most times and how many times did you see it? Um, that's such an interesting question. Thank you. I mean, I think the exhibition I've visited 40 times. 40? Yeah, 40 is the Hang zum Gesamtkunstwerk. It's a tendency towards the total work of art, which it kind of connects to what we discussed before. You know, when we think, when I sort of ask if maybe the video games can become the Gesamtkunstwerk of our time. You know, it was an exhibition Harald Seemann did for the Kunsthaus in Zurich. And he tried to address the kind of total work of art. You know, if it's Runge's color theory, or if it's Rudolf Steiner with the Goetheanum, or if it's, you know, or if it's Joseph Beuys, like lots of different examples for, for that. And, and I was like 16 or 17 when that show happened in Zurich. And it was almost like, uh, you know, the exhibition kind of became a classroom and I would always go there, you know, to study it and, and learn more. You still think about that exhibition? Yeah, always. And that's why I think, you know, it's so important that we have many strong museums and exhibition spaces in the city because it's, uh, it's extremely formative for, you know, for new generations. It's basically a school.
Yeah. And uh, and that's, I think, something which is important for the future. When I grew up in Zurich, the Kunsthaus Zurich was this incredibly experimental, dynamic museum uh, where I would go, you know, every week. And it literally was more important for me than school. Yeah, that, that was your education. There. Yeah, it was my education, you know, and I think that's that's something important to keep in mind, which is why we need we need these spaces we can we can go to. Yeah. We've just arrived at our fourth location though. Do you want to say where we are? I do think that this place is very, very exciting because we are basically here in front of a pub uh, where Charles Dickens used to stay. And so it's kind of interesting because we spoke a lot today yeah. about cultural spaces, you know. We talked about exhibition spaces, we talked about artist-run spaces, we talked about, you know, the city as a cultural space, we talked about walks and flanneries. But we also need to think that in London, pubs are cultural spaces. And the Anglesey Arms is a pub where many cultural figures, you know, spend time. And, and of course, you know, you mentioned the cafe culture. In Paris, London has the pub culture. And yep. a lot of artists, you know, used pubs actually for inspiration. Near the, the French Institute where we've just been, there is a plaque saying that that's where Francis Bacon, you know, used to be. And of course, you know, his pub was the French house in central he was London a real in Soho. Man, yes. uh, anyway, here we are at the Anglesey Arms. Should we take a seat? <laughs> All right, we're now sat down inside uh, the Anglesey Arms. I think you're a person who likes cafe culture. I can imagine you with like an aperitif. I can imagine you with a DJ, Steve. I can't really imagine you with a, a pint. Yeah, I mean, pubs uh, were always also gathering points for meetings and artist meetings. And I think it's interesting, you know, if you think about the idea of where, where to meet artists. I mean, a lot of my early artist meetings, I came in the 90s in London, happened actually in pubs. And of course, beer, you know, played a really important role for the English art world in the 90s because there was this sponsorship through Beck's Beer. And uh, I always remember when I came here, there were these incredible openings in the 90s where everybody got free beer, you know, yes. because Beck sponsored it. It was Anthony Fawcett's project. He organized that and, you know, um, they actually sponsored exhibitions. They did actually sponsor some of my early shows in the 90s here. But the amazing thing is that they just gave free beer to everyone. So there were these very, very big openings. So, you know, beer plays an important role to, you know, to bring people together. Were, yeah. you, were you amazed or horrified by British artists' capacity for beer? I mean, I think everybody has to decide what kind of amount of beer they drink. Definitely not horrified. No. no I mean, no. I can imagine people coming from overseas and not quite understanding yeah. the, the, the sway that it holds over our imagination. Uh, no, I, wasn't, I was really fascinated by this idea how it can be a glue. Yes. You know, how it can bring people together. And there's, it's all, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's always about bringing people together. But that's what you do. Yes, and that's also what I believe is important for society. Because, I mean, Etelatnan, who is another mentor of mine, a poet, she says the world needs togetherness, not separation, love, not suspicion, a common future, not isolation. And if you believe in this idea of, you know, togetherness, there are many different ways, you know, we can have salons, we can have brutally early clubs, we can have <laughs> exhibitions, we can have pavilions with free admission where everybody can find out their own ways. Pubs, you know, are part of that. And I do think that the They're history- They're all things with no doors, basically. Well, they've got doors, but the doors are always open. It's interesting because in this DIY series of pieces here, we have uh, the young Brazilian artist Jota Mombasa. We also worked with Jota on a park night. And uh, that was a collaboration with Boiler Room because we also, uh, another partnership we have is with Boiler Room. And we thought that was super interesting in terms of the interdisciplinarity of our program. Yeah. Who's making who look cool there? I think you're making Boiler Room look cool in that situation. 
They're I getting some art credibility and art kudos. It was a good synergy because it also brought us some new audience, you know, who otherwise wouldn't necessarily see an art performance. And it's always about crossing audiences, you know, because I think we need new alliances. I think in terms of this togetherness, it's also about fostering new unexpected alliances for the 21st century. So one example is um, a few years ago at the Serpentine, we worked with Jakob Knudstinsen, and it was a collaboration with BTS. So all of a sudden, a contemporary art show and BTS brought all the K-pop fans to contemporary art. I was going to say, in terms of fan bases, BTS fan base, probably one of the most like vociferous and focused and intense in the world. Were you guys sort of shocked by working with them? In the, the sort of, I, I don't know what happened, but I can imagine it was bracing. It just created a crossover that all of a sudden a lot of people who never came to the gallery came to the gallery. And that crossover happened again also when we collaborated with the car show with uh, Acute and Fortnite. Because mm. all of a sudden, you know, the Serpentine was built uh, um, as a simulation on, on the landing page of Fortnite. Yes. Um, and it means that 140 million people in two weeks encountered, you know, our space and it produced a completely, you know, different audience. It happens now also, you know, with, with Gabriel Massan. And I do think that, you know, to bring all these worlds together, art, music, literature, but also, you know, pop and, and also sports. I think there is a huge potential now of creating synergies between arts and sports. How would you do that? I mean, would it be um, football? There is one example, it's a project, you know, I'm curating with uh, Juan Mata and Josh Reilly, which is actually a project. It came out of the idea that basically um, we realized that Juan Mata- The football is, player, Juan Yeah, Mata. is really yeah. into contemporary art and he followed me on Instagram and started to like the post. And so we, we set up a meeting. And so we had meetings in Manchester and started to think about how, you know, could we actually bring an exhibition together between art and, and football and I knew that uh, the artist the eminent artist Tino Segal was very interested in you know in, in Juan Mata was very interested in football so we brought it's again junction making we brought the two of them together uh, and so that was a sort of a first chapter of this project Juan you know Josh and I are curating it happened as part of MIF as part of the Manchester International Festival and um, Tino basically choreographed a piece in the football museum so here again you know we have art in an unexpected place, the Football Museum in Manchester, where, you know, a, a sort of artistic cyclists, dancers, but also footballers would sort of basically enact Tino's piece. And Juan Mata performed as part of Tino's piece. So that was the first bridge, but I think there is a potential for much, much more. But it was fascinating to see how, you know, Juan and Tino would sort of do this, this work together. You know, sometimes can be one plus one equals 11. Well, I didn't expect that at all. Uh, at this point, we're going to shift our focus from Kensington and just talk about London in general and the things maybe that you think deserve five stars in your life. And they can be anything at all. What's important is that it's your first reaction. You know, what is your five star pizza? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my favorite pizza in, in the world is definitely the River Cafe. Sure, okay. And um, yeah. the River Cafe, uh, because also as a place where food is also connected to art. Uh, and, you know, as we always have artists uh, in the center, you know, it is fascinating how Ruthie Rogers has had dialogues with the River Cafe, not only with architecture and urbanism. You know, we spoke earlier about the kind of how important food is for, for the city and, of course, the connection. Rusi and Richard Rogers have always had, you know, with, with, with food and urbanism. But no, there's also a very strong dialogue with art. You know, many artists from Ed Rocher, whose exhibition just opened at, at MoMA, to, to so many artists from London, you know, have uh, had collaborations with Rusi. It's, it's, it's a cultural space in that sense, you know, but it is also my favorite pizza. Okay. 
And not including the park that you essentially live in, what is your five-star park in London? Hampstead Heath. Let's go for that. Now, Hampstead Heath, I moved to London on a Sunday and had my first you know, office day at the Southern Down on a Monday in 2006. And in the later afternoon of that first office day, I went to see the late historian Eric Hobsbawm. And, uh, you know, I was a bit nervous because I had never met him and he lived in Hampstead. So I went two hours early with all the books to, you know, to prepare the interview, to prepare the meeting. They're big and books I, as well. Uh, yeah, you must have books. been carrying a lot and of I had, You know, I had read the books before, but I needed to refresh my memory because they're big, complex books. And so I took these big books with me in my backpack and arrived two hours early. And I needed to find a place where I can prepare. And as he lived in Hampstead, you know, it was kind of the nearby solution was to prepare that conversation in Hampstead Heath. And, and, and in a way, ever since, you know, I've had a special relationship to that park. Yeah, what an amazing memory. And do you have a five-star gallery that is not the Serpentine? The museum I've spent most time in is definitely the Sir John Zones Museum. Yeah. Uh, because the Sir John Zones Museum is a place, actually, it's the only museum in London, not only where I worked, but where I lived. I mean, today it's not, no longer uh, in existence. Today it's office space. But at that time they had on the top floor a Sir John Soane's guest room for, for Soane scholars. And that room was most of the time empty because there are not that many you know, Soane scholars you know, in the world who came to London to necessarily spend time there. Mm. A couple of times a day, the walls open and you see, because he had too many paintings, so basically some paintings are hidden behind the paintings and then the walls open like windows and you have other paintings behind. And, and the guest room was on the top floor. We, I would sometimes you know, come back late in the evening after you know, a dinner or after a party and come, come back to, to sleep there. I always needed to kind of knock at the door with a really complex Morse code. Right. Until then the guard would open. There was the security protocol was the Morse code. No, so I would say that's definitely, I mean, again, there are many galleries and museums in London I love, but that's the one I have the closest sort of personal biographical lift. It certainly sounds like it. Yeah, you have a connection. Okay, we're gonna rattle through a few more. What is a five-star meal in London, a restaurant? I think I really love Clark's on on Kensington uh, yeah. Church Street. I, I love Clark's for its uh, extraordinary, you know, ingredients. Yeah. Um, again, for the connection to art, because when I moved to London in 2006, my partner Kushong Ah, the artist and I, would, would often go in the morning for coffee, because it's open for breakfast also, yeah. for coffee to Clark's, and we would always see Lucian Freud in a big coat enter and immediately disappear yes. in the back room because of course he had sort of his own space where he could be undisturbed. Yes. Uh, so that's a strong image. I love the food at Clark's and of course there are also the traces of Lucian Freud's presence there. Yeah. And, uh, and I would say that's it, yeah. Would you say like for you like eating nice meals and stuff is a sort of distraction from the serious business of <laughs> building junctions and creating work? No, no, meals are wonderful because meals are not a distraction from work. I mean, meals are a great opportunity to have a conversation. Yes. Now that conversation pieces in a way. And, and as all my you know, life and work is about conversations, meals do play you know, an important role. They important facilitate role. chat. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end, I think, of our time in the Anglesey Arms. Thank you very much, Hans. Thank it's been so a genuine much. pleasure meeting you and chatting to you. Thank you for the great questions. It's been so much fun. Thank you. It's an honor. <laughs> That was Hans Ulrich Obrist. Uh, thank you 
for showing me around uh, South Kensington, Superhands. Uh, it was a long and very involved conversation. I'm sure the, the editor is going to have to take out huge swathes of that to make it nice and coherent. If it sounds like I'm sort of listening, dumbstruck, unable to take part in a meaningful way, it's probably because all the interesting, very, very substantial things I said were, were taken out in the edit. If you want to hear and see more of the inimitable Hans, do follow his uh, critically acclaimed Instagram account, Hans Ulrich Obrist. It wasn't taken. Uh, he posts all sorts of stuff. Juan Matt is a fan, as you heard. And check out the Park Lates, what they're doing at the Serpentine every so often in the evenings. It's quite sort of gig-like, quite kind of ravey. Sounds like a lot of fun. If you liked the uh, podcast, do subscribe. Definitely do subscribe. Uh, we appreciate that. It really helps. Give us a five-star rating as well. There's a new episode every single Tuesday. Uh, new celebrities showing me around a little bit of London that uh, means a lot to them. I feel like I might try out a new catchphrase at the end. Uh, maybe keep it local. How does that feel? Not good. What about localize it? Also not good. See you in the streets. Maybe that one. Anyway, I'll think about it for the next time. And then I'll use one. Uh, and we'll see how that feels. Anyway. Have a lovely week. Cheerio. Love Thy Neighbourhood is sponsored by Freenow, the mobility super app. Freenow lets me choose between four different modes of transport in one handy app. Private rides, e-bikes, e-scooters, and of course, the iconic black cabs, or as I like to call them, the Knights of the Road. Just the other day, I was on my way to review an extortionate East London restaurant that only does pickle plates and cods row, and it's thanks to the free now cabs that are allowed to use bus lanes that I arrived on time and didn't lose my table. All hail the Knights of the Road!